You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. If you want to be opening your Bibles or unlocking them, however you do that, turn to John chapter 4. So we just got done with our Authentic Vision series. And if you weren't here for those, if you didn't get a chance to listen to those, I would ask you, go back on our podcast or our website and listen to them. Y'all, not because the preaching is any good, but because that really is the heartbeat of what we feel like God is leading us to do in this next season here at Bethel White House. Next Sunday, we're going to start the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to be in that book for a while. And I'm so excited, y'all. If you want to feel better about how messy your church is, just read 1 Corinthians and you'll feel better about yourself. It is a messy church with messy people just like us. And y'all, but through that, the grace and the glory of God will shine through. And so I'm excited to start that. But first, for this Sunday, I want us to walk through one of my favorite stories in the Bible, in John chapter 4. About a few years ago, so it was our 10th wedding anniversary, me and Melissa, we decided to take a big trip for our 10th anniversary. And so we went to Costa Rica. And it took, it was a long day of travel to get there. So we drove for a couple hours, you know, waited in the airport a couple hours, flew for a couple hours. And then once we got in the country, it was another couple hour drive to where we were staying. And so it's a long day. We're in this car. Uh, we got a, it's just the driver and us, and we're driving through Costa Rica. It's beautiful. I mean, there's the beaches. I remember driving past uh, pineapple fields and being like, oh, that's where they come from, the pineapple fields, right? They're right there. And it's gorgeous, but I'm hungry. In fact, I'm getting kind of hangry. It's been a long day. We woke up early. And one of my favorite things to do when I travel is I don't want to go where all the tourists go. I don't want to go to the tourist traps. I want to go where the locals go. And so I just asked the driver, hey, man, we're kind of hungry. Would you take us to eat somewhere that we want to go where you eat? Where do you go? Let's go there. And he's like, man, I got, the, I got the perfect spot for you. No problem. It's just a little up the road, go up the road, kind of turn off in this little town, little bitty town. It's got a little town, town square, a lot like you might see a little town in Texas. And he pulls in the parking lot, and man, he barely has that car in park. He's hopped out and in the door of this little restaurant. And I'm so excited. I'm like, man, we're right by the ocean. What kind of fresh seafood are we going to get? Maybe some, all these fresh citrus fruits. What I'm and my stomach's growling. I'm so excited. I get out of the car and I look up and he has run into a fried chicken store. <laughs> Y'all, no different than Chicken Express just a block away. I'm telling you the Costa Rican version of Chicken Express. And I could not believe, y'all, I had driven a few hours and waited a few hours and flown a few hours and then driven a few more hours just to get the same thing I could get right down the road right here. Turns out, Fried chicken is pretty universal. It's everywhere you go, people love fried chicken. And y'all, it was good fried chicken. It was enjoyable. Well, today in our story, we're going to read about Jesus taking a journey, and he's going to find the thing that is more universal than even fried chicken. The thing you will find wherever people dwell, no matter when or where you are. And that is the pervasive, universal need for grace. It's everywhere. All people need it. The question is, can you find it? We know you can find fried chicken here and you can find it in in Costa Rica. But can you find the grace that we all need? That's our big idea this morning. We're going to read the story. What we're going to take away is this. Grace travels 
to anyone. Grace travels to anyone. And so listen, if you are here this morning and you've ever asked questions like, can anyone be so bad they can't get grace? Have I messed up so bad that God has finally given up on me? Is there anywhere God's grace can't go? If you've ever asked that, this story is for you this morning. So let's read John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 3. It says, he, that's Jesus, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Okay, we're going to pause. So John is very precise in locating where Jesus is and where he's going. But he, he doesn't do it in like directional terms. He doesn't say he's going to hop on I-20, you know, head east, take exit 55, go three miles. No, no, no. He, he's precise in locating it in historical and theological terms. So he says he goes to this town, Sychar. He says Jacob's well is there. Jacob's field is there. And you can read about these. Genesis 33, Jacob buys a field and he gives it to his son as an inheritance. And then Joshua 24 tells us Jacob's bones are buried there. And so he's saying this is a holy religious site for the Jews. Their father Jacob, his bones are there, and they can trace it all the way back to him, that field and that well. But what, what's interesting is in these days, when John is writing, no Jews went there. No Jews had gone there for a long time. In fact, Jesus says something no good Jew had said for many, many years. He said, I need to go to Samaria. Y'all, back then, that was like saying, I need to jump in a sewage tank, okay? They literally could not think of a dirtier place to go. In fact, we got a little map that shows you uh, where Jesus was going. So Jesus is at the bottom in Judea in Jerusalem. He's going up to Galilee to the top of the map. And you can see it's a straight shot. I mean, just shortest distance between two points is a straight line just straight through Samaria. So that blue line is the route Jesus takes, but no Jew, good Jew took that route. The red line is the normal route. And so what they would, they would do, they'd go cross the Jordan River, take the trouble to go across the river out of the way, then head north, avoiding Samaria, and then go back across the river into Galilee. Why are they doing that? Because they thought Samaria was the place that God's grace cannot go. Little history. So after King Solomon, Solomon's sons were terrible. They were bad leaders. They were bad kings. And they split Israel in a civil war. And so that northern kingdom, that is Samaria. And in the whole history of that northern kingdom, y'all, they never had a godly king. They never pursued the Lord. And so over the years, they just got worse and worse and worse. And they had polluted the worship of God. And so they did things like set up their own temple. So God had laid out in his word, build my temple just like so, just like so, and build it there in Jerusalem. But Samaritan said, well, that's our enemy. So we don't want to go to Jerusalem anymore. So we'll just build our own temple. We'll just kind of make it up however we want, put it where we want it. And so they put it on Mount Gerizim. And y'all, actually that mountain overlooks Jacob's well. And so as Jesus is heading there, as he gets to that town, this symbol the ultimate symbol of the pollution of the worship of God is just hovering over this town. And they kind of set aside God's word. And so they really only read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't read any of the history, any of the prophets, the poetry. You know why? Because those books talked a lot about Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
And again, those are our enemies. We don't want to, we don't like that part. So we're, they did what we do. We, they don't read the parts they don't like. So they just set aside those parts of the Bible and said, we'll just make up the parts of the Bible that we want. And so this goes by over the years, and eventually God judges them. He sends these violent, powerful Assyrians to conquer the northern kingdom. What the Assyrians would do is when they conquered a people, they wanted to erase their culture off the map. And so what they did was they would take some of you and they'd ship you off to Assyria where you'd be expected to adopt their culture and their religions and intermarry. But then the second thing they would do is they'd get other people they'd conquer and they'd ship them into your homeland. And they'd bring their religions and their culture and their idol worship. So y'all, by Jesus' day, by the time we get here, that area has been a blender of paganism for generations. Just mixing up and mixing up all kind of idol worship. And so essentially by then, it, it's a, to the Jews, it's a spiritual no man's land. It is ethnically polluted. It is religiously idolatrous. It is morally corrupt. So a good Jew, one who wants to stay clean and uncorrupted, one who wants to make a stand for what is right, one who wants to protect his country and his family from the evil influences of the world, one who wants to make sure no one ever, none of his friends ever see him condone any kind of evil, goes around Samaria. They would never go into Samaria. But not Jesus. Jesus goes into Samaria. Jesus says, I need to go to Samaria. Why? Because grace travels into our sin, not around it, men and women. We'll pick it back up in verse 6. When he encounters this Samaritan woman, it says, So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, right now, the Jews are saying, you see, this is exactly what we knew was going to happen. Jesus, you go tramping around this immoral world, you're going to have a really awkward encounter with an immoral person. And there's some things in the text that show us just how immoral she was. So it's the sixth hour. So they counted their hours starting when the sun rose. So the sixth hour is about noon. It's the middle of the day. It is the hottest part of the day in a desert. And to get to that well, she's not just walking a couple blocks, y'all. She's walking miles by herself in the hottest part of the day, carrying what would have been about a five-gallon leather pouch. And that well is way down, so you got to, that leather pouch, you got to drop it a couple hundred feet, and then you got to pull it up a couple hundred feet. And by that time, it weighs 40 pounds, and you got to put it over your shoulder, and you got to carry that 40 pounds a few more miles back by yourself in the middle of the day. And so back then, listen, if you were top of the totem pole, you didn't go get your own water. You had servants go get your own water because it was hard work and nobody wanted to do it. But if you were at the bottom of the totem pole, you went in the morning hours, early in the day, and you went with a group for protection and uh, for propriety. So y'all, there is, there is only one reason this woman in the hottest part of the day is at this well by herself. It's because she is avoiding everyone else. Or better said, 
everyone else is avoiding her. Jesus has found the person that even the immoral people think is too immoral. That's who he's found at this well. Let's keep going, verse 7. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So when, when Jesus says, give me a drink, that's the moment, Jews reading this, that's the moment they would have spit their water out of their mouth. They could not believe this. She cannot believe it. She goes to educate Jesus on how improper what he's doing is what he's asking. Y'all, this is scandalous. Understand, they didn't carry around red solo cups, you know, pour you a cup of water, here's you a cup of water. No, no, no. This means Jesus is going to have to share this water pouch with this Samaritan woman. Now, I don't even let my kids drink after each other most of the time, okay? Y'all, this is so unclean from them. So they had a saying back then. The saying was, to share a drink with a Samaritan is like sharing a drink with swine. So let, the pig, let a pig drink from your cup, and then you drink from that cup. And y'all, they didn't just mean it's gross. They meant it is immoral. Pigs are unclean for Jews. It's an unclean animal. And so they thought they w- that Jesus was literally going to get her sin, her uncleanliness, and drink it into himself and become tainted, become contaminated. They thought, her, don't you know her uncleanliness is a threat to you, Jesus? And so when the woman, that's why the woman asks, how is it? How is it you can ask me this? You know what she's really asking? She's asking, how is it that you think you and I can have any kind of relationship? You are clean, and I'm as unclean as they come. And any interaction we have, don't you know, Jesus, will tarnish you. Let's see what Jesus says. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So when Jesus says, I have living water, y'all, he has this woman's attention. Because you live in the desert. In the desert, your whole life revolves around getting water. Because every day, you're going to wake up thirsty, and every day, water is going to be sparse. And the only water they could count on was from this well. And again, they had to hike. They'd go a couple hundred feet down. It's really hard. You had to work really hard to get the water you needed every day. But living water, to them, that meant a spring, a reliable, fresh-flowing source of water that would come to the surface. And they called it living water because a little oasis would form around it right there in the middle of the desert. Little grass would pop up. Animals would come. And so when Jesus says, hey, forget this well, I have living water, y'all, it's like him saying, I have a tree that grows money. I have uh, endless, easy, freely, and abundantly available source of what you need most. That's what she would have took it to mean. And of course, verse 11, she's skeptical. She's like, well, this is the best Jacob could do. And he was like the greatest guy that's ever lived. Are you trying to say you can do better than Jacob? You don't even have a shovel let alone some kind of backhoe or something. Where are you going to find this spring that that you're talking about? 
You know what I think she's really asking there? I think she's really asking, do you really have what it takes to help me? You're making big promises, but do you really have what it takes to help me? Have you ever been there? Not only dying of thirst, but starting to lose hope of ever finding living water. Thinking the amount of grace I would need is way too much for anyone to provide. Have you ever said things like, I'm not like these church people. You know, I don't have my life together like all these other people. You know what? Maybe at some point in your life, some really good people have tried to help you, but all they could do was give you some rules that were too hard for you to follow. And so maybe you find yourself just thinking, there's, there's no way anyone can really help me. Well, Jesus is going to answer her question by saying, there is nowhere that my grace cannot go. Verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Okay, so I think this is the woman's first sign. She's first putting together that maybe we're not talking about the same things. Okay, And obviously, she's been talking about physical thirst this whole time and physical water, but now she's maybe starting to understand that Jesus is talking about our spiritual thirst. He starts talking about water that doesn't just satisfy temporarily, but that puts an end to thirst. Water that will give you life not just now, not just today, but eternal life. And water that doesn't come from a well in the ground, but that springs up from inside of you. In verse 15, you can almost hear it in her voice. She's starting to hope again. The woman wants what Jesus is talking about, but she's still, it's not quite computing. She just doesn't want to have to come to this well anymore. Why? Same position we're all in, because every day of her life, she cannot avoid her thirst, and yet, Getting water forces her to face her shame, her loneliness, her isolation, and the effects of all her past decisions. That's her cycle every day. And Jesus says, I will give you this water, but you have to be willing to address your spiritual thirst more than your physical thirst. He keeps going, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Well, here we go. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Which kind of sounds like Jesus saying that a little sarcastically. Like, it's a fifth true, what she said. Now we're, we're getting down to business. We're finding out this well isn't the only thing that this woman has returned to again and again and again to try to satisfy her thirst. She's been jumping from relationship to relationship, trying to quench her spiritual thirst. See, men and women, Jesus, he's he's created the scene to paint a picture for us because all throughout the Old Testament, wells are a symbol for idolatry. They're the places we go other than to God to find peace, meaning, exhilaration, safety, relief, whatever it is that we think is going to quench our spiritual 
thirst. For example, Jeremiah 2.13 says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. See, this is the same language. Jesus is using Old Testament language. And they have hewed out cisterns. Cisterns are just wells for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is telling them, even back then, I created you to have a relationship with me. I am the one who can satisfy your thirst. But instead of coming to me, you're creating your own ways to satisfy yourself. And when, not if, those wells fail you, you just keep digging more and more and more. Jesus looks at this woman and says, your wells are 0 for 6. They're not satisfying you. And here's, here's what's amazing about this to me. Again, she, she kind of tries to give a half-truth, like just part of it. Gee, Jesus already knows it all. He already knew it all back in verse 4 when he said, I have to go to Samaria. And he knows you too. He knows you too. He knows all the wells that you've been trying to dig and still grace travels to you. It's here for you today. Because let me tell you, that journey that Jesus is taking in John 4, that, that short journey from, from Jerusalem to Samaria... Y'all, that's nothing, nothing compared to the journey he has already made from heaven to earth and that he will soon make to the cross for you. Grace travels to you and he does it willingly and joyfully having already known everything about you. Grace has traveled to you and it is not surprised at what it finds when it gets there. Then the woman responds, verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's almost there. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Okay. Y'all, Jesus, he's so patient. He is so patient with us because what, what she's doing is really what all of us do from the moment we can talk. Learn to deflect attention when we're in trouble. So, hey, Johnny, why'd you hit your sister? Well, she did you know. Don't look at me. Look over here. She is using theological religious arguments as emotional armor to protect herself, to divert attention from her own sin. And y'all, we do that so many times. We use debates to avoid exposing our own hearts. Don't look at my own well. Don't look at my own idolatry. You know, let, let's talk. Which is it? Predestination or free will? Let's talk about that. But grace travels to you, not just looking for your head, looking for your heart. Looking for you to find your satisfaction in Jesus alone. And so Jesus isn't there to settle this years-long debate. He is there for a relationship. And so he's, he answers her, verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus, he starts having what we called in college a DTR, a define the relationship. You've been hanging out a lot. It's time to talk about what kind of relationship you have with each other, okay? And he's saying, I want a relationship with you, but it's a relationship of truth and in spirit. So when he says in truth, he means according to the scriptures and me, the scriptures and Jesus. So in verse 22, when he says, you worship what you don't know, we worship what we do know, he's essentially saying the Jews were correct. Say what you want about them, but at least they built the temple where and how God revealed and told them to in his word. God said, build the temple in Jerusalem. So that temple on Mount Gerizim, you just made up on your own. It is not in truth. But it's also bigger than the temple. Because in the same book, if you just back up three chapters, John chapter 1, it's going to tell us that Jesus himself is the full revelation of who God is. And later on in the same gospel, he's going to say that Jesus is the truth. He is the fullest revelation we have of God. And so Jesus is essentially telling her, listen, if you are wrong about me, that's going to affect our relationship just as it would any relationship. It has to be based on how I have revealed myself, not you just making it up however you want. He's saying as a Samaritan, you have to correct that. But then he says our relationship is going to be in spirit. Now we usually immediately think, oh, holy, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. That's probably included a little bit, but y'all, that is not how the woman would have understood it when Jesus said it. Most likely, she would have understood it to mean something like authentic or something like with your whole self. So the spirit is one's, the core of one's being. In spirit means with your whole heart, your thoughts, your emotions, your will. So think the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with, with all you got. The whole kitten caboodle. That's what that in spirit means. So when he says God is spirit, remember he's contrasting it to a piece of dirt. Do I worship at this piece of dirt or at that piece of dirt? He's saying, no, no, no. God is not a building. It's not this temple or that temple. God is a person. And so worship is not a ritual. It is a relationship. Jesus is saying worship isn't about picking the right place and going through the right motions. And we see this throughout the scriptures. God has always, always desired authentic relationship with us. Just one example, Isaiah 29, 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. All he's saying is they are not worshiping me in spirit and in truth. See, men and women, grace travels to you Because God wants a relationship with you. Going to a place and saying the right words while keeping your heart distant is not a relationship, y'all. It is a chore. And that's why. That's why you can go to church and do all the right things and feel totally dead and feel like you're dying of thirst. It's because you are pursuing a performance, not a relationship. You know what? And we all do this. And I understand why we do this. Because everywhere else, every, every other part of our culture, the way it works is you are loved the better you perform. We live in a world where the way you are loved, you earn it. 
And so the more beautiful you can keep yourself, the more love you get. The smarter you are, the more love you get. The more talented you are, the more love you get. The more committed you can show yourself to the cause, the more love that you can get. The better you perform, the more loved you can be. But listen, here's how grace is different. So performance says you have to travel to God. Jesus says my grace travels to you. And that would be a great place to end this story. But it's not where John ends the story. He keeps going. And he does that because he's trying to show that, y'all, when grace travels to you, when it changes you, y'all, that's not the end. That's just a beginning. And so the story keeps going. We're only about halfway through, but what comes after, y'all, it's not an afterthought. It's not a prologue. He is showing the effects of grace traveling to you. And this is our application, I think, for us. Worshipers in spirit and truth, he's going to show do three things. Number one, drink the living water. We drink the living water. It is offered to you, but you have to drink it. And the woman shows us how to do it. First, you confess. And confession simply means agreeing with God about yourself. Notice when Jesus told her all the dark, ugly things about herself, y'all, she doesn't argue. And in fact, this same woman's about to run into town and shout it from the rooftops and tell her, y'all all know what kind of person I am, and he knows too. She's not hiding. She agrees with God about herself. And then you believe. So if confession is believing or agreeing with God about yourself, belief is agreeing with God about himself. Jesus' last words to her are an invitation to believe in him. Verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now remember the Samaritans, they, they believed in the Pentateuch. And so as soon as Jesus said that, the woman would have recognized those words from Exodus 3. When God meets Moses in that burning bush and says, Moses, I am. Jesus is saying, I am that God who revealed himself to Moses in that burning bush. And just as Moses became a friend of God, you too, Samaritan woman, you can become my friend. Listen, if you're here today, I want you to understand, understand what has happened. Grace has traveled to you today. Think about this miracle. God has found a way for these same words spoken to a Samaritan woman on the other side of the globe thousands of years ago. He found a way for his same words to be repeated to you today. Grace has traveled to you. And so if you're here and maybe you've been around the living water, but you haven't drank it yet, do it today. Confess and believe. The second thing we do when grace travels to us is we drop the bucket. We drop the bucket. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, are you kidding me? After all this round and round and round about water, and she just forgets her bucket. She just leaves it there. She never gets water from the well. How? How does she forget it? It's because she doesn't need it anymore. See, grace does more than give you a second chance. It gives you a changed life. You're not looking for the same things you used to be looking for. And that woman dropped her bucket because she was changed. And men and women, hear me. Y'all, there is nothing 
the world around us finds more confusing than we claim to have faith in Jesus Christ. We claim to have this, this living water springing up inside of, us, but inside of us, but we go to the same wells carrying the same buckets they are. They look at us sometimes and what do they find? We're just as materialistic, chasing all the same stuff. Many of us unable to be generous because we're too maxed out keeping up with the Joneses. They look and they see we're just like them, concerned, more concerned with work demands than the work of God's kingdom. They see us like this woman, incapable of having healthy relationships, usually because we're just using people to be our wells. Y'all, this is why, look around, what do we see? We, we see a culture where we are, we got so many options. Y'all, we are drowning in wells and yet dying of thirst. Isn't that our culture? Drowning in all the wells we can dig for ourselves, yet dying of thirst. And y'all, the only way out is to drop the bucket and run after God's grace. Choose Jesus and opt out of everything else. So we drink the living water, we drop our buckets, and third, we pursue people. This is exactly what this woman does. She pursues people. Let's read 28 through 30, and then we'll skip ahead to verse 41. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see, a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him, and many more believed because of his word. Y'all, this is amazing. Think about this woman before she encountered Jesus. She avoided people at all costs. Now she calls a crowd to herself and says those two beautiful words. Come, see. Come see for yourself. And so what started as a story of grace traveling to her has now become a story of grace traveling through her to a whole town. And this, this is what Jesus wants his disciples to do. Remember them? They ran to the Sychar Super 1, went and go looking for food. Can you imagine their surprise when they come back and they find this scene? And Jesus talks to him. He tells him in verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. He's telling his disciples, guys, I didn't come to Samaria for the food. I came to pursue people with grace. And he says to them, he says to them in verse 38, you have entered into this labor. Jesus is telling his disciples, hey guys, your travel plans just changed. We have a map again. He's saying, guys, you used to go around Samaria, no more. Now my disciples go to Samaria. Because grace travels to anyone and now it's going to travel through you. Men and women, we have to hear this. Pursuing people means we stop going around Samaria. You have to go into it. And I don't know how. I don't know how we got here, but there seems to be this kind of new Phariseeism that's, that's rising and bubbling up in our culture that, that says, you know what? I need to keep myself clean. If I'm going to keep myself clean, I've got I to keep a 200-foot radius from all those heathens out there that somehow sinful people are a threat to me, that 
Somehow taking sin seriously means a refusal to enter into relationships and conversations with broken people. But then I have to ask, how? How can we consider ourselves more moral and more righteous by avoiding the people and the places that Jesus himself went into? The Bible, we have to get this straight. The Bible is clear. The sin that is a threat to me is my sin. Didn't Jesus say it? Didn't he say it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean? It's not who you share water with that's going to make you unclean. It's what comes out of him. You and I self-generate our own sin. But then Jesus says, but if grace has made me clean, then I am clean indeed. This is the picture Jesus is painting in John 4, that grace transforms us from being thirsty to dispersing living water. You and I become walking wells for the thirsty to come to. This is what we do, y'all, when we pursue people, when we invite people into our homes that might have different lifestyles, when we befriend people who reject God, when we love our neighbors who are hard to love, when we pursue people, grace is traveling through us into Samaria. Well, what an amazing story. I hope that sinks in this morning that you serve a God who says, my grace travels to anyone. It travels to this six-time failure who was totally confused about who I am, but who I love dearly and who I want a relationship with. And grace has traveled to you today. God is telling you this morning, he knows everything about you and he wants a relationship with you. He came to earth so you can know him. He died for your sins and he rose again so you can have a relationship with him. So men and women, let us drink the living water. Let us drop our buckets and let us pursue people with his grace that goes to anyone. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.